Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang tamang sanghang namasami The last talk I gave a week ago, I mentioned the three characteristics of existence of Tilakana. This evening I want to expand on that by focusing on Anatta for another session this evening. Again, I do this uh, on purpose uh, to try and use however much uh, samadhi you've developed over the range retreat so far to put it to use in gaining uh, the insight into the nature of mind, the nature of your body, the nature of this universe in particular to be able to penetrate to this uh, truth of anatta and uh, you should know that it's penetrating to the truth of anatta, which is the, uh, the most uh, fundamental breakthrough. It is that uh, wisdom, that understanding, uh, which when it's full, uh, will enable you to know that you're a stream winner. And it will also make the Dhamma of the Lord Buddha abundantly clear it will give you the understanding of, of what this practice is all about and also where it leads. You'll understand what Nibbana is and how this whole process works. So focusing on Anatta is uh, a most important uh, part of Vipassana, of insight practice at this stage of the retreat. Uh, you may know that throughout this range retreat I've stressed that you cannot split samatha and vipassana and even now that I'm not expressing this teaching as anything different than samatha it's just focusing on another aspect of the practice and using the recollection or the investigation of anatta as a means of penetrating the truth but also as a means of developing deeper and deeper calm in the mind. Every deep insight which you gain should lead to peace, and that is a measure of insight, the peace which it brings. The degree of peace which you have is measured by the, the insight into the nature of the mind which it produces. Sometimes people like to measure insight by uh, their convincing arguments and descriptions or their brilliant Dhamma talks or books to others. But that's not a measure of insight at all. I've known many people who have written brilliant books but without deep insight at all. And uh, knowing the nature of their lives 
that you can see that the understanding which they have is basically borrowed from another. It is not their own. And so the measure of insight is your ability to make the mind very peaceful and calm. Anyone who has deep insight will have no trouble at all gaining jhanas. Anyone who claims insight and cannot access those jhanas, for me anyway, I say that insight is superficial. Anyone who can gain jhana should be gaining deep insight, the very least into the nature of this mind and how it, <coughs> how it can play with this outside world and its senses to its own detriment and how when it keeps in its own home inside it experiences far less dukkha and trouble. But anyway, here this evening I wanted to focus on that practice which uncovers anatta, the truth of non-self. Even the word anatta, many people will not be able to fully understand. You only fully understand the meaning of these words when the experience arises. All the words, what I can describe, are only just pointing in the direction of the meaning of that word. And this is sometimes a problem when people mistake the words and they don't, for the, the whole meaning, they don't follow those words to look where they're pointing to, to find out what anatta truly means. The anatta is the, the truth that this sensory experience by which we can know the world is without a being, without a person, without a self, and as a result of that, there is nothing which it owns or possesses or controls. But all this which we take to be me is just a misconception. All this we take to be mine is resulting from that misconception. And as a result of taking all this to be mine, there we suffer, there we, we weep and wail <coughs> when things do not go according to our plans and wishes. But to understand deeply into the nature of non-self, the Buddha gave us such trainings as the Satipatthana. And as I was explaining in the Anagarikas and Novices meeting, nuns meeting on Monday night, that the whole purpose of Satipatthana is very much to uncover this illusion of self rather than illusion, I like to call it delusion. I'll just pause a bit to mention the difference between illusion and delusion. To me anyway, illusion is pointing out to there being absolutely nothing there and you're making something where there is just emptiness, where there is nothingness. As I understand the Dhamma, the anatta it's not an illusion so much as a delusion. The anatta delusion arises because there is, as it were, something there, but we misinterpret it to be a self, a being, a me. What is actually there, <coughs> what we misunderstand as being me or mine, is just a process. And the word process is the nearest we can get to describing 
this cause and effect relationship which occurs on the level of our body and of our mind but without any core to that cause and effect the one cause arising producing an effect and that effect completely vanishing and then causing another effect sometime in the future with nothing in between just like a string of pearls but with no string going across and if you look closely between two of those pearls adjacent pearls there's a space of nothingness and when you can see that space of nothingness you can understand why there's nothing joining those things together except perhaps just cause and effect that's all but that's something which is hard to see one of the reasons it's hard to see is because people aren't looking in that area it is the nature of the defilements of the calaisis to stop you looking in that area to put up all sorts of barriers and obstacles which are when they're removed can undermine the self's very reason for existence those barriers and obstacles need to be overcome one of the means to overcoming those barriers and obstacles is, pan is panya, is wisdom a, a little bit of understanding of the Buddha's teaching another way is confidence and faith believing in those teachings even though a person may have been a Buddhist a Buddhist monk even or a nun for many years sometimes they don't have that full confidence in the Lord Buddha's teachings now when the Buddha said that the five candors starting with Rupa is not me, not mine, not a self and Vedana is not me, not mine, not a self Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana, consciousness is not me, not mine, not a self. Still, they take consciousness, that which knows to be me, to be mine, to be a self. They take the doer to be me, to be mine, to be a self. They take perception as if I am doing this perceiving. And they take Vedana this feeling of pleasure or pain with each one of the five or the six senses, sorry they take this as personal I hurt I'm in pain I'm disturbed and from that you can see how craving and the whole problem of existence arises and even this body they take to be a self my body that's why sometimes we're so concerned with what food we put inside our body now when a person has this delusion of a self in these five areas it means that they'll be creating a whole heap of craving a whole heap of clinging and a whole heap of suffering in order to overcome overcome this it takes again panya it takes uh, sada and faith and this is what the Buddha taught so how about following the Lord Buddha's instructions here how about looking at these things as non-self how about focusing on areas of existence which 
because of the Lord Buddha's teachings, he say these are the areas where you should put your attention. Sometimes that people have so little confidence in the Buddha, they even think that they've completely abolished the view that the self is identical to the body, or the self is in the body, or the self controls this body of ours. And Lord Buddha was saying in the Satipatthana Sutta that you should really look at this body and to say, is there anything in here which I take to be a self, which I take to be me, which I take to be mine? And instead of coming to a conclusion that no, that this is nothing in here which I take to be me, which I take to be a self, to be a take to be mine, don't come to a conclusion so quickly. Take the body as a, as a focus of your contemplation. And by contemplation I mean just focusing your awareness on that body and just noticing how you relate to it, noticing how you think about this, noticing what you do with this, as if you truly were stepping back from this whole process of mind and body and seeing the connection between them to see how the illusion or delusion of self connects and controls this body. I gave a simile many years ago about that thousand petal lotus. You all know it, so I will not repeat it here. But it does need that sustained application of insight practice that just looking, 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 or observing, 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 just the attitudes you have to your body, until there comes a time that when you start to see the very deep and subtle attachments, the very, very fine threads of delusion, which make this body, as it were, a problem, Make this body mine, if you make this body me. These delusions are deep and profound. They've been there for a long time. They are hidden, but they can be seen, they can be, they can be extricated. That is why that early on in my practice, my way of developing insight into anatta, was to use the, the tool of what do I take myself to be. Very quickly I discarded the tool of who am I, who am I, who am I, because straight away I saw that who am I was already implying that I was something or someone. It was the wrong question to ask because implicit in that question was the assumption I was something. It was, I was not quite sure exactly what I was, but it was something. What do I take myself to be? Was seeing in the, the realm of perception and cognition and view, what I actually thought I was, what I perceived I was, what I viewed I was. I was uncovering layers and layers of delusion as you watch this body, 
And I watched how I perceived this body, how I thought about this body, how I viewed this body. Sometimes it shocked you to see that after all these years of practice, having read all of these things, having given talks about anatta, still you could see taking this body to be me, to be mine, to be a self. I noticed this whenever concern arose about the body, about its health, about its longevity, about what it looked like. If someone called me fat or someone called me skinny or someone made jokes about me, about my race, about my gender, about whatever, if those rattled me in the slightest, it was because I still had a view of self with this body. I still had perceptions and thoughts about this body as being something to do with me or mine. Especially if any pain occurred in this body. And I started worrying about the, uh, the safety of this body. And I wasn't willing to let this body go. What you're attached to is what you won't let go. What you can't let go. What you want to to carry on, what you protect, what you control. All of this is what comes about from the delusion of self. And death itself. Sometimes people think they aren't afraid of death, but then they come face to face with a tiger or, or a cobra. And then they find out whether they're afraid of death or not. When things are threatened, so sometimes in my early meditations I used to imagine myself in, in such situations like with a snake or with a tiger or with, with something like that. You'd sometimes seek dangers out to see whether I truly did think this body was a self or not self or what. Not on the level of intellectual understanding but how I actually related to this body whether I truly viewed, perceived, or thought of it as a self. Yeah, reading about the Satipatthana, the Buddha said that if one really practices Satipatthana on the body, is to know this body as it truly is, to the extent that you just know this is just a body. It's not mine, it's not a self, it's not me. If you can do that, there are many benefits which you get. And I remember reading out, one of the benefits are the four jhanas. One can attain easily without difficulty. I remember pausing to contemplate that on Monday night. But if you can't attain the four jhanas easily without difficulty, it means you haven't fulfilled kayagata sati yet. You haven't fulfilled the, the recollection of this, this physical body. There's still something in there which you're holding on to. And why is you holding on to it? Because you're still at a very deep level beyond what you can see, at a deep level covered by awija, there's still taking this body to be a self, to be me, to be mine. When I say the body, it's this physical body, but also the five senses which are intricately involved with this body. 
as I mentioned here before, I've perceived, understood that these, this body is there to keep the five senses going. And the five senses in return protect this body a little, but not too much. We'd rather experience, even though we know it's going to hurt the body. The sensory activity of the five senses is paramount, and the body is here to give these five senses a vehicle. And so there is a very intricate relationship between the five senses and this physical body. And I could see that the attachment to this body, the concern for this body, the taking this body to be a self, is very much taken up with the concern for those five senses. With a concern for, for pleasant touches, for comfort in the body, for the ending of physical pain. That's all attachment to the body. For wonderful tastes, for decent food to eat, for lots of food, the food you like. That's because the illusion of the body being a self, being me, being mine. Seeing things, hearing things, smelling things, which are comfortable, which are delightful, getting rid of pain, going towards pleasure and these five senses. That all comes from the illusion of self with a body. If you truly have lain down this body, discarded it, seen that this body is not me, not mine, not a self, the result of that would be understanding these five external senses are not me, not mine, not a self. That's why that I understood when the Lord Buddha said that one of the results, the benefits of Kayagata Sati, the mindfulness on the body, is the four jhanas, at ease, without problems. Because as I've mentioned here before, the four jhanas are achieved by letting go of the, the world of the five senses, by letting go of the body. And that letting go of the body can only come Sorry, that's not true. It can only come with ease, without difficulty, I should have said. Only come with, with ease, without difficulty, once you've penetrated the truth of anatta with regard to this, this body. Not me, not mine, not a self. Only then can you truly let it go. So if you can't let this body go, if you can't let these five senses go, if thoughts about the body, if concerns about sound, itches, aches, pains or something always disturb you in your meditation. How about looking? What in this body do I take to be me? Do I take to be mine? Do I take to be a self? Why am I concerned with physical pain? With physical comfort? Why am I concerned with what goes in my mouth? Why am I concerned with what I hear? praise, blame, beautiful talks, uh, boring talks. Why am I concerned with all of this? If you look deeply, you'll find because you think that this is something to do with you, that this is your business, that this is a self, this is me, this is mine. So when you do the investigation using the the sharp tool of what do I take myself to be with regard to the body. You can unearth some things which 
you have yet to see. You can dig up some places where you still take the body to be me, to be mine, to be a self. It surprises you. It's because that you still take some of these things to be me, mine, the self. That's why stream winning is not yet attained. So only when every part of the five cantus, all of the six senses, the whole lot is seen to be not me, not mine, not the self, only then the stream winner become quite clear to you what it means and, and that it's attained. This is just with regard to the body, let alone when you get to the more refined things like Vedana, to be able to know that each of the Vedana, the pleasure, the pain, the in-between, is not me, not mine, not a self. When you can fully see that, it means that whatever feelings come up, you can bear with them. Even painful feelings, you can bear with them. Why? Because not on an intellectual level, but a very deep level, that you can disconnect from even the most painful of feelings. This isn't me, this isn't mine, this is just feeling. There's a lot of difference between being in pain with the delusion of self and being in pain with the wisdom of anatta. In one you're at peace, in the other one you're burning. And you know those differences. So if during the course of this range retreat you have had pain, you have had uh, irritations or whatever, check why is it a problem and to check whether you're taking this to be me, to be mine, to be a self. This is what I mean by say, what do I take to be me, to be mine, to be a self? And you use the experiences which come up during this retreat. Even the coarser experiences of just physical pain, of tiredness. As I was telling quite a few people that I've noticed that my upbringing was conditioned in the uh, 60s and 70s, early 70s, mostly the 60s in the UK, which was a very rebellious era. And I've kept that rebelliousness so much so that uh, if I'm very tired or if I feel sick or if I'm in pain, and sometimes I decide to rebel against that sickness or pain. And the sickness and pain says, go and rest, take it easy. You can't meditate, it's too late, it's too cold, it's too hot. And the rebellious nature in me says, so what? I'm going to meditate, even I'm very sick. I'm going to sit up cross-legged and sit for a couple of hours. And I just challenge those demands and statements of the body which say it's impossible. It can't be done. You're in pain. In my monastic life, when I've challenged these things, I've usually discovered the bluff of the body. The body says, you're sick, you've got a fever, rest. I sit meditation and get into deep samadhi. I'm in great pain. I've got to go and see a doctor. I just don't follow it and the pain goes. 
even with a fever. Sometimes this happens and it's fun to do because it just shows you the delusion which this body can create. And you know it's delusion because if you want to, you can completely snap it and dissolve it. You make this world out of perception, out of views, out of thoughts. You make this world, you create it. And if it's created with the delusion of self, you create a world in which you are bound. You have no freedom. Rebelliousness shows you your freedom. Basically, you can go where you want, you can do what you want. If you go deeper, even perception, do I take perception to be me, to be mine, to be a self? When you get close to things like perception and consciousness, in some places, such as the Potapada Sutta, perception is almost synonymous with vijnana, with consciousness, basically because it's a major function of consciousness. If you're consciousness, you're perceiving. If you're perceiving, you're conscious. And sometimes we think that perception is me, is mine, is a self. And it's, again, interesting, especially when you develop deep meditation, just to notice just how uh, random is perception. Why in all of the uh, things available to be perceived, why you choose this and not the other? And sometimes you see that you are a creature of habit here. You perceive according to habit. You perceive this way and not another way because of so much habitual conditioning. Your race, your gender, your upbringing, your experience all make you choose from the shelf of available options just one or two. And so often people always choose the same. Again, that simile of perception being going to a supermarket shelf with all different types of breakfast cereal and you always choose the same one, or some people do. Every time, always choosing the same. Every time when you're looking at the mind or the body, always taking the same perception and missing so much more. That's why deep meditation, samatha, especially jhanas, blows away those habits. Instead of always taking the same breakfast seal from the shelf in that simile. After jhanas, just, you take other ones. You see all the products on the shelf. You know how this whole thing works. Your mind is powerful, your mind is, is wide and deep. You can do these things. Investigating perception is a very wonderful way of, of developing the wisdom which breaks the illusion of self. It's not only I, we think, who perceives, but we perceive in such a way to sustain that delusion. Basically, that when we have the delusion, we want to keep it. There is uh, a simile which was in the Payasi Sutta, 
which is uh, the people who are studying Pali uh, got to that sutta now. Well, this man, these two friends go to a deserted neighborhood looking for treasure, and one of them, they both actually find some hemp, take it away. On the way home, one finds some, some linen. They take up that linen and put it on their head, and they put down the old hemp. The other one carries out the hemp, and on the way they find some copper, then some silver, and then some gold. One of the people, they've already put the hemp on their head. It's already well bound. They say, it's good enough for me. While the other one would always change the worthless for that which was worth more. And when they got back home, the one who brought back the gold was well received by his friends and relations. The one who only brought back the hemp was driven from the town or something. So often our perceptions, because we've had them for a long time, because they're well bound up, because we're carrying them on our head as if they were mine, we refuse to let them go and pick up a new perception. The way we look at the world, especially our views, and the way we perceive according to those views, because we've had these for so long, we refuse to put them down and pick up the gold. When we do insight based on deep states of tranquility, we have the ability to put down the old bundles of hemp we've been carrying around for lifetimes and pick up the gold. Not without that. You do need that powerful mind, that quiet and the still mind. The experience after jhanas, the experience when the five hindrances are abandoned, is the mind can see things in a different way. It's that still that the old ways of looking very easily slip by and you look deeper and deeper and deeper. Looking deeper means, as it were, taking off those old wrappers of old perceptions, old views, old ideas unwrapping the Dhamma. It's wrapped in all your old conditioning. Old condition is where the old views and ideas come from. It's unwrapping the Dhamma. And as you unwrap it and unwrap it and unwrap it, you get to new wrappings which you've never seen before. And that's basically what insight is. Seeing deeply into the nature of things to the point where it's, where it's new something you haven't uncovered before. And you go deeper and deeper and deeper until you find that what you're seeing is exactly as it's described in the suttas. What the Buddha, what the Arahats have been teaching you all along, but which you have not accepted. Sanya is not me, not mine, not a self. Vedana, Rupa, not me, not mine, not a self. Sankara is not me, not mine, not a self. Vijnana, not me, not mine, not a self. You go deeper into the Sankaras. Thoughts, ideas. How many people fight wars over ideas? Arguments on who's right and who's wrong. All these thoughts, all these ideas, if you take them to be yours, then you will argue. 
you take them to be yours, you will think there is a right and wrong there. All they are, you should know, is just thoughts, just ideas, that's all. Some are more accurate than others because they're pointing to reality, but they aren't reality. But sometimes you should look at the thoughts and ideas which arise in your mind with the uh, tool of what do I take to be me, to be mine, to be a self. And very often you'll be surprised that thinking or ideas you are taking to be you, to be mine, to be a self. This is who I am. This is my thought, this is my ideas, this is my views. Very easily you can define yourself by your thoughts and ideas. Sometimes it's good if you think you're a Buddhist to go and see a born-again Christian who challenges you. Many years ago when we were I was staying in our temple in Magnolia Street with Ajahn Jakara. There was a letter drop in our mailbox and it was a local born-again Christian group, Potty House, or Potter's House. I prefer to call them Potty House. <laughs> and they were doing a, a presentation on film of uh, uh, the orange people exposed Hinduism exposed, Buddhism exposed, strange enough, iridology exposed as well. Don't know what they had against iridology, but that was down there as well. And it was a letter drop and everyone was invited. And I wanted to go. And I asked Ajahn Jaka, can I go? I like a bit of fun. And Ajahn Jaka wouldn't let me go. I was always disappointed and regretted that. That would have been good fun. It was also like a test to see whether you would be rattled in the midst of so many people who had completely different views and yet sometimes that we can if we are rattled if we are upset, concerned get angry, irritated at a view, at an idea why? It's because we're taking that to be me to be mine, to be a self you should look at these things, what do I take to be me? But very deep lies the, that which does. And I focus on this because this is a deep part of the illusion of self. Choice and freedom. It's why our Western world, in its delusion, fights for individual freedom. As if there was any individual freedom. There ain't. It's just a delusion. The freedom to choose, the freedom to be in control of your affairs. How many people are really free in the West to choose what they want? Or how many people are just completely in the power of advertisements, cultural inducements, peer pressure, conditioning from their youth or from their past lives? How many people are truly free? answer only arahats. The choice which we make, the decisions which we make, the wonderful place to focus on, see yourself choosing, 
choosing to move your legs, choosing to scratch yourself on the cheek, choosing this word rather than another word. What's doing this? Where does this come from? Where does it originate from? What chooses? Please never say who chooses because that implies a being there somewhere. What chooses? Where does it arise from? To be able to do that you need a very quiet mind, a peaceful mind. One of the problems with people trying to do insight, deep insights, is because their mind can't even watch the breath for five minutes without wandering away. However, can you sustain the attention on an object of insight long enough to really uncover it? Five minutes is not enough. You're going to watch this for hours. Choice. To see choice coming and going. Long enough to gain enough data to suspend your old ideas and beliefs long enough to see the truth. That's why that simile of the lotus. The sun has got to warm the petals of the lotus so long for the innermost petals to open up. The mind has to sustain its attention on something like choice, chedana, one of the most important sankharas, so long before you can fully understand it and comprehend it and to see it for what it is. Chedana is conditioned. Once you start to see Chaitanya as being conditioned, the more evidence you have, especially jhanas, are great to see that Chaitanya is conditioned because again in jhanas, Chaitanya stops. It gives you a bit more information. It makes you doubt that it's you who are doing this. And also you start to see exactly what is Chaitanya. Remember I said that this is a delusion of a self. Chaitanya is real, but we mistakenly take it to be a self. We add something to it which isn't there. Just like a mirage. It's real light reaching your, your retina. But we misunderstand it to be something else. The same with this Chaitanya, the doer, or rather that which does. Choice. If you look deeply at it again and again and again and again, you start to find out why you say these things, why you do these things. A lot of the time you do it because you did it before. You say it because you said it before. Habits. Because you got pleasure there before. And the mind seeks pleasure there again. Very often you see that you can't stop this. This is conditioned. comes from beyond you beyond the self, beyond me. But sometimes that people ask a question, it's a very good question. If Chena is completely conditioned, how on earth can we sort of stop it and become enlightened? It's because of Buddha. Because of the Buddha's existence and teachings, because of that enlightenment, that produces the condition to stop our Chaitanas. Without the enlightenment of the Buddha, it would be near impossible for us to create the Chaitanas ourselves 
to end samsara. The nature of chaitanya, because it's conditioned, if it's just in ourselves, we just go round and round and round and round. Self-sustaining cycle. You need some external input to break this cycle. And that's come from the arahats, that's come eventually from the Buddha. It's interesting to watch Chaitanya. I think I mentioned to some people some of the experiences I had with Chaitanya, with my will. Early on, I really thought that I was in control of all of this, this body and this mind. If I decided to do something, I did it. But how much I was a creature of habit, creature of conditioning. One of the things which really rocked me in my early years was when the hippie era, many of you know this story, of going to these big rock festivals. I was a rebel. I thought I was being an individual, making my own choice. That was what rebelliousness was all about. Making your own choices rather than following like sheep, what everyone else was doing. Until when I went to a rock festival and found that everyone was dressing the same as me, had the same hairstyles, with beards, beads, green velvet trousers. I wasn't the only one, I was the only one in green velvet trousers in Acton maybe, but not in the Isle of Wight during a festival. And I found I was just wearing a uniform. And from that you started to see that was physically, externally. How much in your mind are you wearing a uniform? With your choices, with your thoughts. The same as everybody else, like a sheep. Remember Venerable Visarada once telling me because his father was a farmer and he had to work on that farm. And on that farm when there were some sheep he one day found around a, a thicket of bushes which was circular in the middle of the field a whole line of sheep completely circling that thicket of bushes. They couldn't see the other side of those bushes but they were all in a circle walking around and he was saying that they didn't know how long they'd been walking around following the one in front in an unbroken circle but he suspected that he hadn't have broken them they'd still be there today, just walking around, following one after the other. <laughs> and that's a wonderful simile about your mind. You just follow one thought after another, one choice after another, round and round, samsara. And being a, a farmer, he managed to sort of take one of the sheep and pull them out to break the line. In that simile, you know, that young Visarada stood for the Buddha, taking out one of these things to stop this whole circular process of conditioning. Look at that which does. And ask yourself, is that what you take to be you? Is it important that you have the freedom to choose? Are you afraid brainwashing when someone else takes over this choice? Are you afraid of, say, surrender to the vinya or the core what of the monastery? Why? Is it not your taking choice to be you? 
you want to be independent, so you think. But basically, that you're under the illusion that Chaitanya is a self, it's me, it's mine. I once had the opportunity to visit one of the Arahats, Tongpulu Sayadaw, who once, I was with some other monks in Bangkok, we heard that he was in town, we went to go and see him, he was there, we went up to, to chat with him, there was an interpreter there, and uh, the other two monks with me were asking all these questions, silly questions I thought, but I, I asked the silliest one, I only asked one question, that Tongpulu Sayadaw, this great monk, was there, and I had the cheek to ask him, who's answering these questions? <laughs> and Tongpulu said straight away, Nama. Even though he only spoke Burmese, I understood the Pali. Nama, that's all it is. It's mine, just a process. Not Tongpulu answering it. And that's always really hit me, that, because you know, some of these great monks, when you ask these questions, and they give these answers which I didn't expect at all. And so those are things which I contemplate again and again and again and again. You see, there's no one answering these questions. Just nama, just mind. Not a thing, not a person, just a process. That which chooses, choice. Look at that. Because from choice we get control. Control is craving is attachment, it what creates samsara. To be actually choice, you can't be choiceless. And that's one of Krishnamurti's many mistakes, choiceless awareness. He chose to be choiceless, so what choicelessness was there, there anyway? Choice is there, Chaitanya exists. But see its causes, where it comes from and you realize it's not coming from me, not coming from God, not coming from anything, it's just comes from conditioning. The reason why I, I talk like this, there's many reasons. If you want to know why I tell silly jokes, my father used to tell silly jokes. It's conditioned. So don't blame me. So once you start to see all of this, you understand about Sankara not being a self, not being me, not being mine. In particular, if it's not yours, you can let it go. That's a test if you've truly seen Anatta. If this body, you've truly seen Anatta, it's not you, you can let it go, you can let it die. Someone comes along with a gun, they're about to shoot you, there's no escape, okay, shoot. without fear. Because you know this body's not yours. Same way if someone came to steal your car. If they came to steal it, you couldn't stop them. Okay, off you go. Not mine. You can look upon your body like a car. Like the monastery car. It's convenient, but we don't own it. Belongs to the Buddha Society. Hopefully they'll buy us a new one if it gets stolen. Or insurance company will. They don't, doesn't matter, we just don't go in on Friday evenings. Great. So whatever it is, you can start to see that if you're losing it and you're afraid, you can't let it go, that means you take it to be yours. There's a self there somewhere. Can you let go of choice? 
can you let, for example, the senior monk do all the choosing? <laughs> Why not? Or even deeper, can you stop choosing when you're meditating? Can you let go of chedana when you're doing samadhi practice? What I'm asking is, can you enter jhana? Jhana, in jhana, chaitanya ceases. You're not doing anything. The mind isn't moving. Chaitanya moves the mind. It wobbles the mind. It disturbs the mind. In jhanas, the mind is at ease. Not doing. That, if you want to call choiceless awareness, that is choiceless awareness in jhanas. Moment where there's no choice happening. There's no jadana appealing. Just the old jadana beforehand. Sometimes uh, people pull me up on this and they say, in the Anupada Sutta, it says that Venerable Sariputta, in first jhana, he, he knew jadana was there. And just uh, for the benefit of this tape and other people who listen to this, I gave a simile some years ago. Like jhana and the... Uh, where Chaitanya fits into jhana, it's like shooting an arrow. When you shoot an arrow, you aim and you let go. And that aim is there. It exists right throughout the course of the arrow, right throughout its flight until it hits the target or hits the ground or wherever. But once the arrow is let loose from the bow, you cannot change its course. The chadana, if you like, is fixed. The aim is fixed. The aim is, as it were, carried with the arrow until it hits the target. The same with prior to jhanas, you have chadana. But once the jhana begins, the arrow has left the bow. It is flying, carrying that chadana, but unable to be changed until the flight of that mind state ends. The arrow hits the ground and the jhana breaks. That's how jadana exists within jhana, but immovable as it were, implicit but unable to be activated. This is that which does, to see that it's not me, not mine, or the self. Enough to be able to let it go and to be able to abide without thinking, without doing, allowing this process to stop. So Ajahn Chah's famous simile of a leaf only moves because of the wind. The nature of the leaf is to be still. Take away the wind, the leaf wobbles less and less and less until it comes to stillness. Take away Chaitanya, which is the wind in that simile, and the mind wobbles less and less and less and less until it stops in jhana. So what jhanas are, the stopping of the mind, not moving. So those who still haven't seen that jhana is not self would have a hard time with jhanas. So insight into non-self, that which does, it's not me, not mine. It's not me doing these things, I'm not choosing these things. Contemplate that, investigate that, 
until such time as you can see this jhana is just a process. It's got its causes, it's got its effects, and you see them all. But it's not me. But also the other place where the last, I call it like the citadel of the self, because the self like in a, a metaphor is in a castle. In these old medieval castles they had the the citadel or the keep right in the center of these castles and they had all these walls around it and outside those walls were more walls and moats and defenses. And that's what it's like trying to come to the citadel of the delusion of self. Going through one barrier after another barrier after another barrier until you finally come to this this heart where the self or the delusion of self hangs out. The last place which Mara will defend almost to death. That's the doer and even more so the knower. That which knows. That which experiences. The vinyana or the jitta, whatever you like. That which experiences. Do you take that to be you? As if it was me behind the eyes somewhere when you're seeing. Or me, as it were, sort of uh, listening behind the ears. Or me inside the body, feeling all these pleasures and pains through the sense of touch. Or me experiencing the thoughts. Consciousness. Knowing. To investigate that and ask the question, do I take this to be me, to be mine, to be a self? So why in this world, a world affirming dharmas, are dharmas which want you to experience more and more and more, because they celebrate knowing as, as being, as knowing as the self, as knowing as, as I. The more you know, the more you experience, the bigger that illusion of self becomes. I've been here, I've been there, I know all of this, I've experienced all of that. To see that which knows, that's not being me, not being mine, not being a self. To test that understanding by seeing if you can let go of knowing let go of experiencing. That's when you understand it's not me, not mine, not a self. When you can put it down. Can you put down seeing or thinking about seeing, hearing or thinking about hearing, smelling, tasting or thinking about those, touching or thinking about touching in your meditation? Or is every sound disturb you? Or as Ajahn Chah said, do you disturb every sound? If so, why? It's because you still take consciousness, here the consciousness of the five senses, to be yours, to be you. I am hearing this. If I don't hear this, I disappears. That's why you won't let go. Experiencing this body. If I don't experience this body and everything shuts down, I don't exist. That's why you can't let go. If you can understand 
the consciousness, the mind, knowing it's not me, not mine, not a self, you can let it go. That's why you can get into jhanas easily. This has nothing to do with me. Look at what you take to be yourself, the doer or the knower. There will come a time, especially after deep meditation, when you look at all these five candors, especially the doer and the knower, and you see to the very depths there is not a person there, not a being, doesn't belong to you, completely conditioned. Very common simile of jhanas is that simile of the lake, the waters of the lake. When there's ripples on the surface, there's activity there, the mind is not at peace. In jhanas, the mind is at peace, as if you're looking at a lake without any ripples whatsoever. The surface absolutely smooth, without any movement or agitation, either on the surface or in the water. Only then can you look above that water and see to the very depths of that water. If there's any movement there, or any fishes or stuff wobbling about in the water, creating movement, it creates distortion in the water. The light gets bent, and you can't really see clearly what's at the bottom. But when that water is, or sometimes it just stirs up the mud at the bottom, making it cloudy. But when that water is absolutely still, and it's been still for a long time, so all the mud has settled, and the water, as it were, is crystal clear as a result of stillness. Then you can look above, and you can see clearly, without delusion, without things being bent and distorted, you can see clearly right to the very bottom of that body of water. Only after jhanas can you see clearly right into the bottom of this mind right into the bottom of knowing and doing, to see that there's nothing there. Just process arising, passing away. If you really see this, see the process which delusion takes to be me or mine or self, not only do you see the truth of anatta, you also understand how this whole samsara works how that process, even though it hasn't got a heart to it, this is not a path with a heart, this is a path without any heart. That might not be very amenable to lay people, but this is a path without any heart whatsoever, anatta path. If you actually see that, you can understand how this process can generate future births, how this process can go on. Sometimes people find it difficult to understand how there can be anatta without and with rebirth. If you really understand anatta, what the Buddha was saying, you understand rebirth as well. Understanding anatta is understanding dependent origination, cause and effect. That process which people misunderstand to be a self, to be me, to be mine. But looking at all of these things in terms of what do I take to be myself, to be me, to be mine. And seeing as these are the things in experience which one takes to be a self, that's why one can't let them go. 
Just knowing that much, focusing on that and uncovering the delusion. Having that still mind so you can see right at the very bottom of the lake. See there's no one there. Nothing knowing, it's just a process of consciousness. No one doing, it's just jadana. Then like Bahia, you will know that in the seeing is your seeing. No one doing the seeing or choosing to do the seeing. In hearing, in smelling, in tasting, in touching. It's just the touching. No one doing the touching. No one experiencing the touching. It's just consciousness. In mind objects or mind activity, that's just mind activity. It's not an essential mind. Not an original mind. It's just this process. And then you'll be free. Be careful with knowing or doing, because it's always as if there's a screen. You're behind it and the world is outside. It's easy to see the world beyond. There's not me, not mine, not a self. It's the world in here. So I was saying last week, following the beam of the projector, not just looking at the screen where the movie is, but looking back where this movie's coming from. And see, it's just a machine making all these illusory images of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, thoughts, mind objects. Just like a movie, that's all. Not real. We add the reality to it. We make the self. We, we construct it through perpuncture. Seeing all of that, tracing the thing to its source, and seeing it's completely empty. Not me, not mine, not a self. Then, like Bahia, we can live. Not taking up anything in the world as a self, for me or mine. There comes the end of rebirth. You know, stream winning, when you've seen how for so many lifetimes you've taken something to be a self the doer or the knower usually. You've seen that, you've uncovered, you know how stupid you were. Or rather you know stupidity. You know that there's only a matter of time before the rest falls into place through perception and thought. You know that samsara is doomed for this particular process. And when through each of these senses, each of these candors, one doesn't even perceive or think for a moment these things as anything to do with the self, me or mine, just a process, that's all. It becomes a simile of like a meteor circling around the solar system so many millions of years, hundreds of millions of years and then they suddenly strike the atmosphere of the earth and then they just go out in a blaze of light that's it, they're finished, gone. So the Arahat, going around samsara, millions, tens of millions, countless of millions of times, till they meet the Dhamma. They meet the Dhamma, they go out in a brilliant blaze of teaching. So please focus on the contemplation of anatta. What do I take to be me, to be mine, to be a self, in terms of the five candles or the six senses? Not as an intellectual exercise, but as a tool 
to uncover things you've yet to see. As a monk, you know that you cannot claim these uh, Utri Manusadhamma like stream winner falsely. If you tell another person that you're a stream winner and it's just boasting, you don't really believe it, it's Parajika. You have to leave the monkhood for your whole lifetime. It's a good test. If you can actually, the person sitting next to you or your teacher, to tell you you're a stream winner, you're at Anagami, you're on Arahats. To be able to do that without fear, good test that you really are one. Can you do that yet? If you can't, it means there's still something to see which you haven't uncovered yet. Really focus on this anatta. Get underneath the delusion. Find out what it is you're still taking to be me, to be mine, to be yourself, which stops you having the true, clear knowledge. When stream winning occurs, along with it comes the knowledge of stream winning. You cannot be a stream winner without knowing it. That's impossible. So find out what's stopping you. Basically, the gaining jhanas is great, very, very important. But the only one thing you should truly be aiming for in this lifetime is stream winning. Because that's the only time you can be truly safe. You really know that samsara is doomed. At least that you should attain in this lifetime. Only then have you got a sense of security, safety. Okay, I think that's enough for this evening. Has anyone got any questions or comments about this talk on Anatta? Yes? Usually state with light and mind just like a video camera. That's a metaphor I've never thought of before. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether that question, the answer to that question is useful even. And I think the answer is no, a video camera doesn't have consciousness. Not a good metaphor. saying that if everything which is experience appears to be, what was he saying? Well, either the, like a film being played. Like a film like being played, yeah. Consciousness being like recorded. The important thing with the insight into non-self is not just the screen, but everything, everything experienced, but also the experiencer. People always objectify this and they keep the sense of self inside somewhere in the fortress, safe and sound from the, the uh, destructive forces of insight. 
it's not just seeing things out there on the screen, seeing who's watching this screen, seeing you know, who's choosing the movie, who's choosing the channel, who's pointing the camera, or rather what's doing this. That's the important thing to, to understand. So it's not just what's experienced, but the experiencer. It's not just the what's on the movie, but why that movie. But if there's no possibility of choice, or like, no, no desire of choice, or like desire to manipulate? Well, there's no possibility of choice, no desire to uh, manipulate. That's not uh, what I was saying. Choice exists, choice happens. It's just, you know, the causes of choice, it's not coming from the self. So, choice is understood. Choice does not disappear. It's understood. And it disappears in jhana, where it disappears, paridivana. It's understanding the doer to be just a process. Understanding the watcher just to be a process. Okay, this is enough for this evening. <laughs>